Episode 205, The Cost and Quality Impact of Mistreating Millennial CEOs of Healthcare. Today, I speak with Maya Dusenberry, journalist and author of Doing Harm. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. 85% of patient visits happen in the non-acute space. What happens if you don't provide high-quality services at these non-acute care sites? Patient leakage, for one. Another problem with poor quality is poor quality metrics, and also patient satisfaction, at least if that poor quality is perceived. Another consequence of poor quality is higher cost per patient for the ones who stick around but haven't been properly diagnosed or put on the optimal treatment plan. The NIH, in fact, published a study showing how much more patients with undiagnosed conditions and on the wrong treatment plan cost versus those who have been properly treated. And spoiler alert, it is pretty significant. So let's talk about how to achieve high-quality care efficiently. First off, I'd consider the 50% cohort of patients who a mountain of medical literature confirms receive suboptimal care. Women. And if you're now suddenly thinking about this in the context of a gender issue, let's put that aside for now. Let's think about it in the context of a business issue. Women are often described as the CEOs of their household healthcare. So maybe we should consider not dismissing the concerns of the boss. Also, women are the most likely to go elsewhere for care, taking themselves out of the healthcare system or out of the healthcare system entirely for alternative medical approaches. And it's tough to provide risk-based care when the evidence basis isn't actually evidence-based for half your patient population. Finally, employers care about the productivity of their talent pipeline, and you can't be productive if you're out sick, feeling sick, or taking care of your sick kids or your sick parent. So if employers are a concern, that's something to keep in mind. But here's the kicker. You know all the talk lately about consumerism and about how millennials are going to shake up the status quo. Millennial women, half of that equation. Today, I speak with Maya Dusenberry, journalist and author of the book, Doing Harm. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Maya. Thanks so much for having me. Let's discuss this statistic, which is from Virginia Ladd, who is the executive director over at the American Autoimmune Related Diseases Association. That is a mouthful. (laughs) Um, But she said, and given how common autoimmune diseases are in this country and and around the world, putting this in that context, more than 40 percent of women eventually diagnosed with a serious autoimmune disease have basically been told by a doctor that they're just too concerned with their health or that they're this hypochondriac. Are diagnostic issues like this specific to autoimmune diseases or is this, does this recover the gamut? It really is a problem that affects diagnosis of a range of conditions. To some extent, you could say that in part, autoimmune diseases are hard to diagnose because there isn't great training on them. There isn't a specialist in autoimmune diseases. So experts say that that really kind of hinders prompt diagnosis. But on the other hand, we see women experiencing long diagnostic delays for a range of conditions. One study found that women under 55 were actually seven times more likely than the average patient to be sent home during the middle of a heart attack from the ER. 
Studies have found that women are treated less aggressively for cardiac arrests and more likely to have their strokes misdiagnosed. For non-acute problems, too, we see that there's this gender gap in the diagnostic delays experienced. And at least some of those studies have really tried to tease out whether the delay is happening on the patient's side or the provider's side and find that that, that gender gap really does usually open up after the patient has first entered the medical system. And at that point, men tend to be, you know, referred to a specialist more quickly and have to make less trips to a doctor before getting the right diagnosis. And and this is, again, for a range of diseases from brain tumors to cancer to heart disease. You had said just now that there is not great training and no experts in autoimmune disease. Is that in and of itself, given the fact that more women than men tend to suffer from these conditions, is that in and of itself a bias? You know, given how common these things are, why aren't there any experts and why isn't there great training? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the book, I sort of lay out the two big problems that I see in the system as the knowledge gap and the trust gap. And the knowledge gap just refers to the fact that we don't have as much medical knowledge about women's bodies and their symptoms and conditions like autoimmune diseases that disproportionately affect them. And that is, I think, in large part, because they just haven't been a high priority on the research agenda. And as a result, you're left with providers who aren't as equipped with the knowledge they need to make diagnoses in women. And then the trust gap refers to this tendency to not believe women's own self-reports of their symptoms. So for sure, the lack of training on autoimmune diseases impacts women. But at the same time, if you look at diagnostic delays for autoimmune patients, men actually tend to get diagnosed quicker than women do, even though autoimmune diseases are actually more common in women, you would think that they might have an easier time getting diagnosed, and yet apparently that doesn't translate into more rapid diagnosis times for them. Physicians in this country would tend to dig in a little bit deeper with men, perhaps, whereas with women, they don't necessarily think that the symptoms being discussed are, are systemic for some reason. Is there anything there? Yeah, definitely. Probably the biggest factor is whether the symptoms are subjective or if they can be independently, objectively confirmed by a test. Certainly one of the reasons autoimmune diseases are underdiagnosed and misdiagnosed for so long is often their main symptom is fatigue. And it's very difficult for many women to kind of convince healthcare providers that this is an abnormal fatigue, that they're not just, you know, tired from being a working mom and juggling a million things or stress. And certainly for, you know, a lot of chronic pain conditions, there's a huge body of research and testimony about how difficult it is to, you know, communicate pain. You know, this is this very subjective thing. You really need to trust the patient as a reliable reporter Certainly when we're talking about particularly chronic illnesses that cause these subjective symptoms like pain and fatigue, that is where there is just so much opportunity for these gender stereotypes to come in and for that lack of trust to play a big role. And I think, yeah, it does end up resulting in women whose symptoms are either 
brushed off as, you know, all in your head. So many women I talked to reported getting diagnosed with depression or anxiety, even when they didn't have a history of mental health problems and were reporting physical symptoms. And I think also, in a lot of cases, those kind of symptoms are normalized and sort of, again, brushed off as stress or just a kind of normal part of aging. Menstrual pain or pelvic pain gets dismissed as menstrual cramps when women approach menopause. A lot of symptoms can be just put down to perimenopause. There's been a number of podcasts that I've done lately where the underlying theme of many of them is the burden that's really being placed on the patient. And in this case, if the doctor isn't digging in, there's another burden that's put on the patient, and that is to really contemplate and be firm in their belief that what's going on with them is, in fact, not normal. And, mm-hmm. and that could be hard. Like, how do you know if you're more tired than other people? Or how do you know that nobody's got the joint pain that you have? You know, you talk to a lot of people and they're like, oh, my knee hurts. Well, maybe it's that. You know, like it takes sort of a certain kind of person to not listen yeah. <laughs> to what they're being told. And I'm quoting the NIH here. Tracking health expenditures of undiagnosed patients with chronic conditions are far higher than those that are being diagnosed and treated. There is certainly, even if we look at this, at the population health level, patient care aside, there is a cost burden that's being, you know, women are 50% of the country. So if 50% of the country is being not diagnosed properly with some of these conditions, then clearly this has a macro impact even beyond the clearly the patient level micro one. Mm-hmm. First, to just to respond to your point that that it is really hard to know if it's abnormal and to really trust yourself. I think that's a, a really great point and something that was very striking to me in, in my interviews to realize that so many women who had had these experiences being dismissed and really feeling unheard in the medical system were women who were, you know, highly educated and in many ways had a lot of privilege and authority in other realms. And yet they really spoke to the fact that it is very difficult for anybody to kind of trust yourself when you have an expert in a white coat saying, you know, nothing's wrong with you. I think we kind of underestimate actually how much authority medical professionals continue to have in this country and how hard it can be to push back and to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a second opinion. And yet I think that's, you know, it's, it's so important that women do do that. But you're right, it creates this huge burden on individual patients and then on the medical system as they search for a diagnosis going to multiple specialists. It's estimated that up to one third to two thirds of patients are reporting medically unexplained symptoms. It's estimated that 70% of patients with medically unexplained symptoms are women. And this is kind of talked about as this huge burden on the system and yet it's not talked about as a really <laughs> alarming sign that the system is failing patients. Or actionable. You know? <laughs> yeah. The blame is kind of turned back on the patient instead of saying, wait a second. Okay, so maybe doctors are not being well equipped with what they need. And so I think that that is a shift that really needs to happen. Once again, we're blaming the victim that it's somehow the patient's fault or problem that they've got symptoms that no one can explain as opposed to turning around and saying, well, if we are here to provide care and this is care that our patients need, then what can we be doing to better equip ourselves to provide it? 
Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about this relative to pharmaceutical products and drug trials and where this is also certainly at play? You know, I think one area that is very related is just that, you know, as we've been talking about so many of these conditions that disproportionately affect women, there just really aren't a lot of great treatment options. You know, in my own case for rheumatoid arthritis, you know, you are basically taking really intense immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life. And that certainly there's been a lot of progress in the last 20 years when it comes to treating autoimmune diseases. But I think, you know, it's still not great. And I think a lot of women actually turn to alternative health and, and alternative approaches just because they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know, either being chronically ill or chronically on really intense pharmaceutical drugs. And that's where autoimmune diseases, which are actually better researched and have, have more treatment options than, than even some other female predominant conditions. So, you know, when you consider a lot of chronic pain conditions that affect women, there really aren't any firmly established effective treatments. And so women are really left to try a lot of different things, both within the conventional medicine community and alternatives. But I mean, I think it just underscores that there's so much room for innovation here to, to come up with better treatment options for these chronic conditions that women experience. That's another sign that if we had a medical system that really took women's symptoms more seriously, we would have some better options by now. We would have invested in more research to come up with options. And another aspect of that is certainly that many of the clinical trial participants happen to be men, and a lot of the titration schedules are based on a man's average weight. So you get all these average-sized women being overdosed (laughs) on the starting doses. But then also, you know, for example, there's some great research out there relative to women in statins and some giant question marks that are beginning to surface. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's just so many question marks about so many of these drugs since really wasn't until the early 90s that the the FDA dropped their policy that was excluding all women of childbearing potential from being involved in early phase drug trials. And so there are certainly a lot of drugs that are on the market that have been largely studied in men. And yeah, with, with statins, it seems like There just weren't enough women in early studies to definitively show that there was a benefit. And so it's a huge question mark. And, you know, I I think it's not surprising then that we find that women are 50 to 75 percent more likely than men to have an adverse drug reaction. As you said, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, the the sex differences in drug metabolism that we see are thought to be due to, you know, a, a wide range of factors, you know, enzyme levels and hormone levels and body fat percentage. But even that most basic one that women on average are slightly smaller than men isn't really accounted for. And we have this one size fits all dosage really need to be conducting clinical research that not only includes women, but goes to the next step of actually doing that analysis by gender to see if there are or there aren't differences. So this this clearly isn't breaking news. There's been conversations about this very thing going back to, I'm going to say, the 70s. Really, what has perpetuated this problem where effectively half the population receives lesser care than the other half? 
Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. It's it's really kind of remarkable that it feels like on the one hand, this has been known forever. <laughs> Since the 90s, at least, you know, we've acknowledged that there's this knowledge gap when it comes to women's health. And I think what I really came away from the research feeling was that the reason both of those problems, this lack of knowledge and this lack of trust have continued for so long is that they're really just so mutually reinforcing. So, you know, the the less that we just know about women's bodies and symptoms, the more that we tend to kind of dismiss them and women's medically unexplained symptoms get brushed off as all in your head. But then on the flip side, because we have this long-standing stereotype that women are prone to symptoms that are all in their head, there's not a lot of interest in actually doing the scientific research that would explain their symptoms. So I think it's created this huge catch-22 where a lot of female predominant conditions, you know, are really under-researched, really neglected in the research realm, really not included in medical education so that, that doctors are not equipped with that knowledge. And another big reason I think this becomes really self-perpetuating is that Doctors just aren't getting a lot of feedback on their diagnostic errors. And so we don't have these systems in place to let them know when they did make a mistake, when they, you know, maybe they saw a patient who was ultimately diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, but they said that she was just stressed. But the first doctor she saw, you know, don't get the memo about that. And as a result, they tend to underestimate how often they personally make diagnostic errors. And they also tend to continue to have that same stereotype that they had about her, you know, so they assume that she really was just a stressed mom. And that in turn, you know, affects how they perceive the next woman who comes into their exam room. If we had feedback systems in place, I think that could go a long way. In some areas of the gigantic 20% of our GDP healthcare industry that we've got going on here, there is overdiagnosis, but then clearly there's underdiagnosis in others. But let's talk about a change. And I know that one of the things that you have suggested is that we are poised for change. Why is that? For one thing, I feel like millennial women my age are just coming at this issue from a kind of different place. I'm 32. And like many of my peers, I was sort of raised with the expectation that I would be taken seriously, that people would listen to me, that I would have authority. And I think for for younger women like that, when they start having health problems and, and going to doctors and find that they're not taken seriously and they're not listened to and and they're treated as if they're unreliable reporters of what's happening in their own bodies, it can be really shocking and jarring and a real surprise. At the same time, younger women just have more information and resources at their fingertips when they start experiencing that kind of dismissal. We now live in a culture where you can go online and have medical information that just 30 years ago would have been really not accessible to you. And so I think what we're going to start seeing as a lot of these younger women start having more health problems is that they're just not going to really stand for it. And they're going to share their stories. And I think we're already seeing this. We're seeing more women writing books or writing blog posts or sharing their stories on social media and having that access to that community that says, yeah, no, this is not normal. And a lot of women have had these experiences, but have maybe internalized that dismissal or else they've assumed that it was just one 
bad doctor or it was just bad luck. And I think as more and more women start kind of opening up about them and speaking up, they'll start to see that it is part of this larger pattern. And it's, it's just not about you. It's really is about the system. Speaking of social media and affecting change, in one of the prior episodes, Stacey Worthy, who's an attorney who specializes in helping patients advocate and understanding the financials behind insurance carrier decisions, that is one aspect of her practice. But one of the things that she said is that one of the most effective ways to get an insurance carrier to pay for something is to call a reporter. Because Mm. bad press is bad news. And I would assume that this extends also to health systems. So if you have a cohort of very disgruntled patients and they're all talking, that that clearly could lead to business repercussions just in and of itself. Certainly one huge role of online patient communities has been to share information about doctor recommendations. You know, who are the people I can go who know about this, who under-researched condition? And and so I think, yeah, not just talking about who's doing it poorly, but talking about who's doing it well is a huge thing that, that patients are increasingly doing online. It's also clear that women are not only starting to go to get a second opinion or a third or a fourth or a fifth, but also are dropping out of the medical system entirely. A lot of women get so frustrated by that struggle that they give up. Statistics show that women are more likely than men to utilize alternative health practices and say, you know, look, this if you can't give me the medical care I need, I'm going elsewhere. You're not doing your job. And that raises an interesting point, which I wonder if anyone has connected the dots on, which is that there's a giant push in this country to get younger people signed up for insurance coverage in order to even out the risk pool. But if you get a significant cohort of that younger population who doesn't feel like there's value in getting that coverage because the care that they're receiving is is inadequate in the ways that you're describing, this could be a major factor in their decision-making to forego insurance coverage, uh, you know, affecting the entire system. That's a great point. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's definitely possible. I wonder also whether employers have a stake in this game. For example, I was just reading an article recently about the major talent shortage in manufacturing industries and that addressing these challenges requires companies to really start focusing on the entire pipeline, including parents. And if you think about that statement, including parents, and especially if you start thinking that the woman of the house, in large part, oftentimes, certainly not in all cases, but in many cases, is the one who addresses let's just say unexpected childcare concerns or if they're sandwich generation parent concerns that this is a major contributor to and well known to this talent shortage either in terms of skill building that you get women who aren't achieving the level in an organization that they probably could i wonder if we start thinking about that in the context of our healthcare system because a lot of the reasons why these childcare issues are unexpected are their healthcare problem you know the kid has a healthcare issue so if our healthcare industry isn't supporting that fact I would start to wonder if employers are going to put some thought into making sure that the industry is supporting their employees in this way. 
I, I would say it's not just thinking about how, how women are tend to be responsible for their kids' health needs or their aging parents' health needs, but also that they're often trying to do that kind of caregiving at the same time that they're being impacted by their own chronic illnesses. You know, I've, I find it amazing that autoimmune diseases, you know, affect up to 50 million Americans, most of them women. And they strike young women, you know, in their 30s and 40s and 50s and cause lifelong illness and often disability. And yet that's not ever a part of the conversation about the gender pay gap, for instance, even though, you know, that's a that's a hugely disproportionate burden on women that, you know, often does mean that they either drop out of the workforce or, you know, take more flexible jobs, part-time jobs to manage their health symptoms. So yeah, I think that that, you know, it would be great to look at like what kind of economic burden is at play when you look at the chronic illnesses that women disproportionately are facing plus those additional caregiving burdens during the prime of their lives when they're raising family and working. And also just to state the obvious here, but it's also a pretty well-known fact that women are typically the CEOs of household health care. I mean, that's right, that's right. it's become a cliche, what I just right. said. <laughs> you know, it would seem to be sort of, uh, I don't know, not s- super strategic to not cater to the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So let's let's talk about what can the healthcare industry do to address these things. You know, so if you were going to give some advice to doctors and to health systems that employ these the, the physicians cuz there's is certainly you know, physicians are being pressed on many levels. So, you know, I want to make sure that we are thinking systemically here. Yeah, it's useful to differentiate between the individual and systemic levels here. You know, individually, I do think that it really is as basic as just listening to women and believing them when they report their symptoms and and say that they're suffering. You know, I think there just needs to be the shift to kind of giving the benefit of the doubt to the patient. And then the next step of just if you're facing a illness that you can't explain and are stumped to just admit that, that you don't know. I think that we just really need more training for healthcare providers about how to do that, how to have that humility to say, I don't know, I'm going to confer with my colleagues or I'm going to send you to somebody else. Again, this is would be easier if, if there was more feedback in place so that doctors were learning how often they are missing the diagnosis and and had that feedback to realize that, you know, very often they might just be facing something that's rare or something their specialty isn't well equipped to diagnose. But yes, as you say, this is something that's very hard for individual doctors to fix because there are a lot of real disincentives to slowing down. You know, when you have a average doctor visit that's something like 12 minutes these days, you know, that is not giving healthcare providers the time they need to really provide this kind of thoughtful, empathetic care. We need to recognize that. We need to give doctors what they need, whether that's time or resources or education. But I do think that just starting with that basic trust in women and their reports of what they're feeling would be the first step. I'm not sure if this is related or not, but I certainly could 
post-it that it might be. There was just this study that came out a couple of days ago that millennials are actually skipping primary care and going directly to specialists. And maybe Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why is that if you get a primary care physician who's rushing in and out, many of the reasons why someone would go to a primary care physician as the, in quotes, quarterback of care, requires actually a certain amount of listening. And Mm -hmm. if a patient is not getting that listening, then effectively, why would they go to a primary care physician? (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. (laughs) it just would be a waste of time. Yeah, that is super interesting. And I I totally agree. I can definitely see that. that, You know, I, I mean, when I was diagnosed, I initially went to a primary care doctor who said, you know, if, if your joint pain continues, come back, but for now it looks okay. And once it had, had continued for another couple of months, I did skip straight to going to a rheumatologist. And that was because I had done my own research. I was, I had a pretty textbook case of RA. So it was pretty easy for me to r- realize that the rheumatologist was the person who was going to actually diagnose me. And so I do think that, that, that might be related to women having more younger women, especially having a a greater fluency of of doing their own research and and figuring out, you know, where they're most likely going to end up to get the diagnosis or treatment that they need. But on the flip side, you know, I think I agree, it's so important to have that quarterback and, and specialists, you know, have their own problems and that they're focused in their one siloed area. And I think that's that that kind of siloing is an, is another huge problem in the system, and especially for conditions that women experience that really are really systemic problems. Yeah, and as has been said many times in Dr. Robert Pearl's book, he spends a lot of time talking about this. Eric Topol discusses this as well, the idea of coordinated care and how healthcare these days is a team sport. And especially mm-hmm. with some of these underlying conditions, like if they cause cardiovascular symptoms and they might also cause something to go wrong in the nephrology department and something to go wrong in the joint department. What winds up happening is each specialist starts treating the symptoms and then nobody diagnoses the underlying condition unless the patient manages to get themselves to some center of excellence somewhere wherein someone can notice that the speckling on the one CAT scan is indicative of of something that nobody even really recognized. Speaking of this burden put on patients, you know, the, the fact that so many women are, are coordinating their, their own care and, and doing a pretty good job of it. But, you know, when you consider that, yeah, we really have a system where often very sick patients are playing that quarterback role for themselves and are often, you know, doing that and then, you know, getting having that work dismissed, you know, having encountering healthcare providers who sort of roll their eyes when, you know, you come in with your stack of files, you know, or like suggest a diagnosis and 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 you get that sort of look like, oh, you need to get off WebMD. When the reality is that you kind of have to do that. If you have a rare disease or if you have an under-researched disease, like that is the only way you're going to get the care you need by becoming that very <laughs> educated, formed patient that, that doctors then don't like that much. And yet you're sort of forced to do that, to, to do what you need to do to get any hope of, of a diagnosis. Well, and I think this goes back to what you were saying before, Maya, that once again, it's kind of victim blaming or not recognizing what the problem is. Like, why did this patient spend hours 
days of their life compiling folders worth of literature had they gotten (laughs) adequate care or had they felt like somebody was there working with them probably they wouldn't have you know like that in and of itself is probably indicative of a failure in the system I feel like I, whenever I see discussion of, of how patients are becoming really empowered, and I'm, I'm always a little bit torn because I, I think that's true and in, in some ways really great that at least some women and patients are in a position to become real partners in their care. At the same time, I don't think that anybody should actually have to do that. I think you should be able to be a really unempowered, uninformed patient and be able to go to the medical system and rely on the experts who have gone to medical school and who are paid well and who we, you know, confer all of this authority to, to, to do it that for, for you themselves. You know, we all have other full-time jobs and, and nobody actually wants their health to become a second full-time job. Right. I mean, that should be the promise of, of the healthcare system. Yeah. Certainly. Is there anything that we didn't talk about, Maya, that you feel we should be mentioning right now? I think even even just kind of learning about some of this this medical history and the legacy that we're still experiencing from you know decades of just leaving women out of clinical research almost entirely and and decades of these really deeply entrenched stereotypes about women if if healthcare providers really were better educated on their own history of the profession I think that that could really go a long way toward thinking more critically and and recognizing the areas where there's still a lot of room for improvement I thank you so much for being on the podcast today Maya Thank you so much for having me it was great talking with you Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.